This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code IRISHTIMES at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hello, my name is Laura Slattery and welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast. On this edition, we'll be talking to award-winning author Christine Dwyer Hickey, whose new novel, The Lives of Women, is this month's pick in the Irish Times Book Club. Christine is also the author of the novels The Dancer, Tatty, Last Train from Liguria and Cold Eye of Heaven, as well as the short story collection The House on Parkgate Street and other Dublin stories. Her first play, Snow Angels, was performed in Dublin last year. But we're here to talk about her new novel, The Lives of Women, a book with isolation and loneliness as its core themes. We're joined by Christine. Welcome to you, Christine. Thank you very much. And we're also joined by two readers of the novel, Irish Times journalist Circa Hamilton and book club member David Joyce. Welcome all. Lovely to be here. They'll be sharing their thoughts on the book later. But first, Christine is going to read the opening passage of The Lives of Women. And just to set it up, the book begins with the return of its central character, Elaine Nichols, to the family home in which she grew up, following a long absence spent in New York. It isn't long before she sees something in her cul-de-sac that triggers painful memories of the past. Over to you, Christine. Winter present. November. Had I not gone searching for the number of some dead roofer called Fenton and found the attic room in need of an airing, I may not have heard a thing. Or had it been summer and the trees in the backyard stuffed with leaves, I'd hardly have even noticed. It's years since I ventured that far into the cul-de-sac anyhow, and since my return I'm rarely out on the road, not without the hard shell of a car around me. And so, unless one of the neighbours managed to nab me at the gate, say on bin day, or just as I was taking the dog back in from his walk, or unless Fat Carmel got wind of things and started fishing for scraps to add to her pot, Weeks may well have passed before the news finally wound its way to me. By then, who knows, this business with my father could well have been over and I could have gone back to New York. By the time my next visit came around, if it ever came around, the house backing onto ours would no longer matter. The rooms would be scrubbed clean of all the old stains, the dust and damp of the vacant years cleared away, while this new family, the now owners, would have had time to peel off the skins of paper and carpet and paint and to smear all the rooms with its own ethological scent. And I wouldn't have to keep thinking about something that happened more than 30 years ago and the old ghosts would not now be whimpering at the far side of my back wall. As it stands, I did open the attic window into the gaudy light of a winter sun and the view over the bare trees and across the back lawns could not have been clearer. And so that's how I know, and can pretend not to know, that the Shillman house has been sold, that the Shillman house can finally be called something else. The patio doors have been pinned back, the side entrance gate removed, the upstairs windows stripped bare of curtains or wide open gills sucking on air. From the interior some sort of a machine is screeching. And men in overalls are coming and going, turning the house inside out, streeling its guts all over the lawn. All day I've been returning to the window. Even the dog is beginning to wonder, shadowing me upstairs to the landing, then cowering at the bottom of the spiral stairwell that leads to the attic room. 
What are you doing up there? His whine seems to say. What the hell are you doing? I'm drinking my mid-morning coffee while two men do a Laurel and Hardy routine down the patio steps, the shillman's grey leather sofa like a dead hippo between them. I'm back with my lunchtime sandwich, watching a young hay-haired man stretched out on the same sofa, spouting cigarette smoke overhead like he's some sort of fountain. I'm licking the yoghurt off the back of my spoon as, one by one, a whole family of mattresses is flung against the back garage wall and the bones of old beds, cots and bunk frames are stacked up alongside them. More than once I return to the young man on the sofa and wonder when young men started looking this good. By twilight I'm polishing the dust off my father's old binoculars. I see it all now and I'm struck by the amount of belongings, boxes and boxes of belongings, many of which have already been emptied, contents arranged into heaps on the lawn. Books, toys, coats, boots, riding helmets, shoes, tennis rackets, skateboards, school bags, more coats. It's as if the shimlins simply close the door behind them with little more than the clothes on their backs. By now, the bare windows on the Shilman house are stark yellow squares on an inky dusk. Other houses around show a flimsier light through curtains and blinds, everything braced against darkness. Pegs clenched on clotheslines, garbage bins back to the wall, witchy long fingers clawing out from emaciated trees. The rusty old swing in the Jackson's garden is sturdy as a hangman's gallows. In the Caudwells, a rolled-up patio umbrella has turned into a hooded monk. It occurs to me then that I may not be the only one looking down from a window, that the Shillman house is visible from at least four other houses, or at least it used to be when I was the local babysitter. I move from the window, lay the binoculars down, my wrists aching from the old-fashioned weight of them. I know I should leave well enough alone, go back downstairs, do what I'm supposed to do, which is to feed and medicate both father and dog. I stand rubbing my wrists for another while, then step back up to the window. Not a sound nor a movement indoors or out. There is only the stir of old turf club badges as I lift the binoculars back up to my face. Whatever I see now reminds me of something, an occasion, a moment, a feeling. Rachel's old-fashioned boarding school trunk, Michael's orange Colnago racer, Danny's yellow tricycle. There's the hats Mr. Shillman bought back from Texas, the Russian candelabra he once told Agatha's story about and made her cry. There's the black rag rug that their girl from the country made and the glass cocktail cabinet with the crack up the middle, Mrs. Shillman's desk where she wrote her letters and the painting Serena gave to her and later regretted one afternoon of heavy drinking. I see the green roll of an army sleeping bag and my heart begins to tighten. I see Carl's haversack and my blood turns cold. Thank you very much, Christine, and uh, welcome again. Um, you've written that this book is uh, about loneliness, in particular the different types of female loneliness. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to, to write along this theme? Well, what... What set it going for me, I think, was one evening at um, twilight, I happened to look out my bedroom window and I saw a house, not quite backing onto ours, but di- diagonally, 
um, backing onto ours had been sold and all the old furniture was coming out. And I realised, I've been living in the house about 20 years at this point, that I didn't know who lived in that house. And it sort of got me thinking about the loneliness of the women, say, I knew would be my role models as a child living in a different housing estate. And how I started to think about how little things have changed. Sometimes, in some cases, they have. But that there are still people who who spend their whole day maybe not speaking to anybody or, you know, women who have had children and the children grow older, children leave home and they're on their own, uh, women who've never had children, um, women who just don't relate because the housing estate thing is so different. In Ireland, I think we have a, an unusual uh, setup in that people came in the, say people came from the te- tenements or working class areas mm-hmm. where they were used to mixing. And everybody knew everybody's business and living on top of it. And they knew there's no point in trying to be coy about your business. Everybody knew it. So then they started to move up the ladder and they got into, say, the lower middle class states, which would have been one I was brought up in. And then if they jumped up again and they went into middle class estates and the higher up the, the social ladder they went, the tighter they had to become with their they were afraid to make mistakes. You were afraid to make mistakes. Nobody really knew anybody else's background, so you were afraid to make mistakes. So that was sort of the, the, the way I was thinking. And I was thinking that all the houses are the same. I could look out my window as a child. I, th- I noticed this even as a child. And even now, you could look out your window and you could hear things through the walls, maybe. And you'd know what underwear the man next door was wearing. But you might never have been inside their house. So there's stories behind every yeah, everybody, door and every se- And every window. single thing. It's all happening in behind closed doors, I think. So, I mean, the selling of the book now, um, the, the passage you read there mm. is the present day. Yeah. And Elaine in, in, in the present day is, is 49, is, isn't, isn't that Yeah, correct? very important age. People, people are saying 50 and I can say, no, she's 49. No, it's 49. It's a, it's a very crucial age for a woman, I think. Yeah. And um, I say I think, but as if I don't know, but I know. But anyway... Um, they, I think it is, you're really looking at, when you get to 50, it's different. You pass the, the, that point and, you know, you just accept it. But coming up to the 50 markets, it's, it's um, some women look on it, even start to grieve and to panic. And, you know, so anyway, it's an important age, I think. But she's been away from this, yeah. this, this, this suburbia, this cul-de-sac. Yes. And she's been away for, for 34 years. Since she was and, 16, yeah. Yeah, and most of the time she's been in, in Manhattan, a kind of yeah. a, sort of the opposite of, of suburbia, yeah. in a way. And then, so what she's looking back on is, um, I mean, it is, it's the 1970s, but it, it is Ireland, isn't it? Because I've seen reviews that have placed it in, in different yeah, places. Yeah, so that's what I wanted the reviews to do. I wanted it... Because I hate, I hate being sort of pigeonholed and I was yeah. hearing about this Dublin writer and this writer who writes about Dublin all the time. Immediately then I want to do something different. But what my point really, if, I, if you can say I had a point in it, was that the suburbs are the same everywhere. And I picked Manhattan because it was the only place that I know reasonably well that, where there's no suburbs. And the suburbs are, you know, I want it to be anywhere. So people have pinpointed, Some one woman had said that, one reviewer said, not only did she know the town in Kent it was in, but she knew the actual housing estate. She, was there, she knew the people and knew the housing estate. <laughs> yeah. And I was delighted with that. And then there was the American thing as well. A lot of people think it's set in middle America, which is funny because while I was reading it, I gave Elaine slightly American accent in my head when I would listen to her voice. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, I mean, how would you uh, describe uh, Elaine, Elaine's narrative voice? I mean, she's somebody who has maybe buried some details of the past and she, is maybe only yeah. beginning to 
let them surface now. She is, yes, she has buried. There is um, a traumatic event that happened when she was young that I actually, I, I know people um, feel that maybe some people don't want to talk about it because uh, they feel it spoils the story. But I don't really, I'm not really sure it does. I think it's an interesting point because if you write a book about the lives of women, the one thing that's going to affect all women, it's most women, we'd say, at some point is an unwanted pregnancy. So there is an unwanted pregnancy in there. And yeah. a, a, a tragedy happens as a, as a result of that. And um, I think that uh, she is so badly scarred by this that when it happened, her father, who's, who's uh, a barrister, and the other men in the neighbourhood just wanted to clear it up as quickly as possible to get her out. And the only place they could send her was New York. Where, where they sent her there with the mother, um, a divorcee, and her daughter, who is American and who is also kind of involved get them out quickly and cover it up, but never forgive them. Get them out of trouble, but never forgive yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and there's a lot of things that are, I suppose, left unsaid in the book as yes. well about what's happened. Well, I think that's the way life is. There's, I wanted to keep it, I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a realist in that way, that I want to keep it as, as near to the truth as you possibly can do as a writer. Now, you're never going to do the exact truth because once you put words onto anything to describe something, it's going to change it. You change the shape of it. But in so far as I could, and things are always left un- unexplained, uh, not, expre- not necessarily expressed ever and uh, hidden deeply. Now, Elaine had that traumatic thing, but she also had a very lonely childhood with the, where there was the parents that were, in effect, separated, but they lived in the same house. Yeah. And her mother was over-possessive and she was her mother's possession. And so Elaine was always very lonely. She was just one of those people that had that sort of childhood yeah know. it's kind of yeah. it's kind of core to her her, yeah, her, her being yeah. in a way um, I wanted to ask a question actually yeah. about that in terms of the details and, and how the story unfolds yeah. I wondered when you started writing I mean there's very much the minute you pick up the book there's very much kind of a, a feeling of mystery when, when you pick it up yeah. and you kind of you <clears> want to go forward because there's things you want to yeah. know you want to know more about these characters did you know what you were or, or weren't going to tell us you know or, no. or did that happen <clears> along no, the way no I don't I, I didn't know I had an idea what I was going to, I had an idea. I knew that, that something awful would happen simply because of the way the beginning of the story shaped out that atmosphere. There is that kind of eerie atmosphere in the opening pages. Mm-hmm. And I I did, I was in, in kind of influenced a little bit about uh, by a tragedy that happened in my own neighbourhood in the 70s. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't write about that, you know. the Yeah, it's too uh, close. It's just too, not just that it's too close, it's just... Even thinking about it, every time I walked out of the back garden, I kept thinking about that boy, you know, the, yeah. this boy, a boy that was murdered in my, my neighbourhood yeah. long before we moved there. Mm-hmm. But it has, I thought when I moved there that there was something weird in the neighbourhood or some kind of an atmosphere, particularly amongst the older people in the neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. So they had that this memory affected, of yeah, this they were tragic affected by event it, yeah. that continued yeah, that down continued the down the years and it continued. I mean, it's no secret. I mean, a journalist has written a book about it. Mm-hmm. And it's pinpointed the, the house where the tragedy happened and that one child, um, an older, older child murdered a younger child and he was found in the attic and a journalist wrote a book about it. So that brought it all up again. But where I, I it wasn't that I lacked the courage. I just didn't feel it was right to do it. And it wasn't my story somehow. I couldn't own the story. Yeah. But this one I knew it's based on so many tr- stories that we all know are true. But we it wouldn't necessarily be one that I have experienced myself. But I know that this happened and we all know it happened, particularly in the 70s. 
and it, and it has been a, a very traumatic event for Elaine and the yeah. feelings of guilt as, as yes. well as everything else. Yeah. Um, you've made you made the choice in the book to, to sort of switch between uh, the first person and then when you in you're talking about the past yeah. Elaine kind of is considering herself in the third person or it's right, reported yeah. that way um so tell us why? why you decided to do it that way uh, well who knows <laughs> the answer is the honest <laughs> answer what i usually do is when i decide what what person to use um <clears throat> i will probably test it out for two two or three paragraphs in both and see which sounds more, more natural. And that's just the way that that happened. Um, I felt that when we, also I think it made more sense because when we are teenagers and we're young and life is full of possibilities, uh, possibility, I should say, and anything can happen. We are almost even though teenagers tend to be very self obsessed and they think about themselves uh, all the time, even if it's in a, in a negative way, they're still thinking about themselves. Um, there's they're still removed from themselves somehow. Yeah. Simply because there's expectation. So I felt that that the third suited her. By the time Elaine gets to 49 years of age, she's become a little bit hard-boiled and she's cynical and she has had difficulties. She's had every success with her career, but she's had difficulties with relationships. And I thought it was better that she has that cynical tone would be would be expressed in a particular way. So that was in... In the first I quite person. like that it's that it, that you that you switch in that way because I, I feel that you know in the present it's her it's her first person you're mm. in her head but because memory anyway for me while I was reading it, yeah. it felt like it was such a central theme to yes. the book it's almost like you know she's seeing herself in third person because that's the way we see ourselves in the past you know you're, yeah. it's over and it's you're kind of watching you can't be active it's in it like anymore yourself in a, an old home movie or something yes. that's, yeah. that's, that's, there that is a disconnection there yeah, yeah there, <laughs> is, right. there is a little bit so tell me David I mean, how did the, the, the picture of the, the cul-de-sac and the neighbourhood in the lives of women, did that? Did you recognise that? Did, it, did any of it resonate with you? Yeah, it did. I thought the, there were some wonderful descriptions in the book about the, the suburb, you know, and about the, the estate in, in, in question. It did bring me back to my own uh, childhood growing up in the 70s and a you know, similar type uh, estate. Um, I, I love the descriptions of the, the, the men all going off to work in, in the morning and you know, exchanging pleasantries about sport or politics very briefly or whatever and knowing each other by first name. And then the kids going off to school. And uh, actually, I, I remember reading, there was a passage where the word gabardines was mentioned. And that brought me back. I said, gee, I haven't heard that word in a long, long time. I, I, I have four sisters, so we had a house full of gabardines when I was growing up. But I don't know if... Uh, I had one, yes. Yeah. School gabardine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. that word's still used. I'm not, I'm I not sure. Know. But, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, no, so those are really great passages. And, and I suppose uh, underlying it, the, the sort of loneliness and the, the, the disadvantageous position that women had in mm. society at, at, at that time, um, I think it was uh, in Elaine's um, journal where she was comparing the suburbs to a ship. Yeah. And, and she kind of, she draws this out and then she kind of moves on to the next par- paragraph and goes, well, actually, no, they're nothing like a ship because on a ship... Um, uh, women and children are always always come first, and in the suburbs, it's the complete opposite. Yeah, that was, that, that was really There's nice. There's lovely too. Uh, kind of duality between you know the New York and this suburb. Like at one point, I think also uh, you described the New York and all the sounds, and mm. it's like an orchestra tuning up. And I just thought that was lovely. It's kind of like yeah, something's going to happen, you know. But also, she's going to be distracted, isn't she, from the memories, yeah. the quietness, it's quite that nice, she, really, yeah. Yeah, or because in the suburbs or in her home. 
there's this kind of quietness and in that quietness are her memories and yeah. these, you know, this awful past, you know. So I, I love that contrast throughout. We're just going to pause for a moment to tell you about our new sponsors, Squarespace. If you're looking to build a site that's professionally designed, regardless of your skill level and with no coding required, then Squarespace has intuitive and easy to use tools. Squarespace, which has its European operations and customer service office here in Dublin, has trusted technology that will power your site, giving it security and stability. To start your free trial site today and with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com using the code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace build it beautiful. Emma, yeah, I just wanted to ask you just to go back to, to, to loneliness. Um, you know, Elaine's mother, she sort of describes herself and their family as, as, as reserved, um, whereas the character of the American divorcee, um, Serena, is, is she is more of an, an extrovert. Yeah. But, I mean, would, would you say that this, you know, these, the, these aspects of their personalities, you know, affect how lonely they feel or how isolated they feel or is there a loneliness almost a result of, of the society that they're in or, or, or is it both? Well, I think Serena came from, from New York where divorce uh, in the 70s would have been more acceptable and then there is that lovely American thing of okay, we're going to start all over again. You dust yourself off and start all over again. So she arrived in and she rattled all the women. They didn't know what to do. First of all, she starts to invite them into her home and invites herself into their homes. So they're not used to that. They're used to being reserved and they're used to, some of them call each other still Mrs. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, even though they've lived beside each other for a long, long time. So she, she rattles things up a bit and it changes. Just one person has to come in and everything, the whole shape of, the, the sub of their cul-de-sac changes, their little cul-de-sac changes. Yeah, she's the yeah. real she's the real catalyst, yeah. and of course she continues to be an important character, she does. Serena, an important figure, I should say, in in Elaine's life. And you know, I was very moved. You know, she tells Elaine that she loves her later yeah. on, and we don't necessarily get the sense that Elaine really appreciates. That. Well, I think she's just not able for it. It's kind of a joke, I think. Yeah. When, and when when Elaine goes to train in Paris to, and she talks to her, says to her on the phone, and you know, I love you, honey. Oh, I, please, I wish you'd stop saying. I don't say that. You know, I. You know, I hate you saying that, but I think she kind of does feel loved by Serena. It's the only um, adult in her life that made her feel like that. Although I did want something. I do think now that there is something between Elaine and her father that was never allowed. Really, her mother, the overprotective mother. Yeah. Uh, Stop that. Um, but at the end of the book, there is a certain amount, but it's not a very close bond, but it's as close food brings them together in the end. Yeah, and she sees um, yeah. her father in the kitchen and she's not used to that. She's not used to that, yeah. A sense that maybe yeah. things are changing a little bit. Yeah, perhaps. that she can, you know, we probably shouldn't say because it might, it might give away the thing. But um, yeah, I think that uh, the other th- interesting thing about Serena um, is that uh, she's actually quite immature in her own way compared to the other women. You know, so that's why the kids love her, the teenagers love her, because she talks to them and mm-hmm. she tells them about her dates and she tells them about her, their, her, their friends, adult stuff that their own parents would never speak speak about in front of them, you know. So Circa, I mean, did any, the, any of the mother-daughter relationships in the book uh, really uh, strike you? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's a really interesting examination of mother-daughter relationships and also a bit of jealousy, you have to guess, mm. between Elaine's mother and then this uh, very kind of open and free uh, yeah. Serena woman comes in and uh, and then also Serena's own daughter, how put out she must be. And I think it's kind of this 
I don't know, as a kind of this unspoken or unasked question of, you know, what happens if you do prefer someone else's daughter to your own? You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of question is there. You know what I mean? And you, you kind of wonder. Mother. You, and exactly, yeah. yeah uh, and how, how would that make you feel? Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, th- that was very interesting. But also in terms of the theme of loneliness, uh, which you were mentioning earlier, at one point, I think it is Elaine says her mother was one of the loneliest people yeah. she's ever known. And, you know, it's... It, it's very striking this kind of statement that comes from her because you know throughout you're kind of feeling that she has this kind of disregard for her mother she doesn't Mm. really like her and um, she's kind of disconnected from her loneliness Mm. yet she's also kind of intensely aware of it Uh, and I thought that was that was very interesting because in the book her her mother almost smothers her you know when she's younger yeah she loves her they sleep in the same bed for such a long period of time what what age was she nine nine or ten and and Elaine stopped it yes because and I think the, the mother almost never forgave her for never that. Never forgave you know? her for a chance. That's, but I think then that the, when she kind of, as a teenager, which, uh, you know, let's face it, most teenagers are a little bit disdainful of their girls yeah. are, of their mothers. Uh, she does have that. But she, we, we don't know, would that have been different if she'd stayed, if things had, have, you know, if she'd stayed, in, stayed at home and gone to college and would she have started mm-hmm. to accept her mother? Mm-hmm. But I think it's after the years of absence that she comes back and she's looking around at all the the, the battery of kitchen utensils. The mother just cooked all the time, cooked, made cakes all the time. That and uh, and and ate most of them. God love her herself. But mm-hmm. she um, yeah. she realizes then that her mother had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a, food. It kind of comes in there yeah, then as well as this time, kind yeah. of theme. You know. It, it becomes the one way that, that uh, Elaine can communicate with her father yeah. is by making him this lovely food. But then there's this very interesting passage where she describes all the food that every day of the week that she, that her father has been uh, served. And you think, oh, it's this kind of functionality. You must think of how yeah. bored her mother must have been serving up all this food. And it's such a contrast to now the way we talk about food. Food is fabulous yeah. now and everybody's yeah. doing this and that. And I just thought, oh, you know. It, she it loved her cakes. The mother yeah. loved making cakes. But anything else, it was just the same dinner every mm-hmm. every. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, same dinner, and yeah, it's a it real kind of, yeah. of smash and the smash and the, smash and <laughs> and the grave, yeah. yeah. And she loved yeah. not having a mess. There was no mess made. Yeah, yeah. so that kind of yeah. domestic kind of mm. you know I don't know trap that she's in is is very different than for Elaine coming back because she wants to yeah. to make it different for herself. Yeah. She want food is different for her now. She's going to rediscover it for herself and for yeah. her father. And she trained as a chef. Then she went to for different kind of food. Can I ask you about Elaine's attitude to marriage? Because Mm. obviously there is a traumatic event and that's maybe prompted her to seek uh, isolation. And, Mm. um, you know, when she, although sex is important to her um, and that kind of companionship, it's, she seems to value the anonymity of it rather than sort of uh, allowing herself into long term relationships. And I suppose I'm just wondering, you know, do you feel, was it the trauma of of what happens in the book, which I don't want to totally spoil? or is it the sort of the sense that the women that she grew up with in the neighborhood, you know, they're either very jaundiced at the start, like 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 um, Maggie Arlo, mm. or they become that way, like um, Rachel Shillman's mother, is, mm. you know, seems there's to different ways of she she copes with alcohol a little bit mm. perhaps, and and yeah. um, there's a bit more a bit more. Uh, I suppose uh, disillusionment with the with marriage as, as the book goes on and seems yeah. to spread th- almost throughout the neighborhood. So, w- is it kind of both those things that maybe both Elaine has rejected the, marriage? I think it's because she experienced um, her parents' marriage as a child, and she had that. 
she would have had if it wouldn't encourage you to marry if you were brought up in that kind of circumstance mm-hmm. if your parents have um, like my own parents are separated and the, 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 the mantra that used to come out of me oh, I'm so never getting married I'm never every time there'd be a row I'd say I'm never getting married and of course then I, I go off and, uh, and immediately get married almost but, <laughs> uh, but you know sometimes with some people it's not going to happen it's not going to happen and she's looking around and almost all the women she felt the two women that had some independence Maggie Arlo who wasn't married and who ran stables from the, the old house. And she was a, a kind of one type of person who was very brash, very anti, very cynical about everything. Yeah. And the other one was Mrs. Shillman, who was sort of educated and could speak French. And her husband was a dip- worked in the diplomatic service and all that kind of stuff. But she's clearly an alcoholic, as is Maggie, actually. Yeah. So there is most of the families that she looks around, she just sees women trapped in a situation and that's the end of it, you know, because, you know, you know, when my mother got married, um, she burned all her old love letters and all her little souvenirs she'd kept from previous boyfriends. And it was almost like a sacrifice when she was telling me about it, that she did it. She was sort of pleased telling me and it was sort of like a sacrifice that you made for the sacrifice of marriage. Yeah, that was all part, part of the past now. All those, you know, nice boyfriends that called from brought her out and brought her to dress chances and all that's all in the past so it was like her life was over yeah do you know what I mean it, it, so it's different it now it wasn't this romantic ideal no, it was once there was until after you were just shortly after you were married once the honeymoon was over the honeymoon was over yeah I mean it's, mm. it is quite stark I, mean, I, was, I was wondering how you felt you know how much has Ireland changed since the 1970s how much have things changed for women you know all over the world since the 1970s well I don't know about all over the world but just from what I can see myself it has changed quite a bit I mean you know I think young women now and older women even it's no big deal if you're not married you know there isn't that thing about you know if you've not if you're not married or you've no children yeah. nobody nobody gives a damn anymore but before it would be she never married or he never married or, you know, there would be this thing that almost anybody was better than nobody. You'd marry anybody. So that's gone. Or if you've no children either, it's not, it's not, it's no biggie anymore. Like people don't, you don't stand out anymore. So in that way, you can lead, lead your life as you wish. Um, and women are more independent. Independent like, with Independent. With if you have your own money, your yeah. whole life is different. It is different. Whether, you st- whether you're in a marriage and staying at home with kids all day or whether you're out working, and coming home, um, if you have your own money, your life is like it's like Virginia Woolf says, a room of, of one's own. You don't just need that for it's metaphorical, I think, as well as anything else. You don't just need it to write a book. You need to have this room of your own that you can go to or, uh, you know, hide in. So independence, it, you know, independence it, it isn't the same isn't, as, it, as loneliness it, or isolation as such. Yeah. It's, it can Those be women very in middle positive. class estates. You know, I don't know whether I'm going off on a tangent now, but there used to be in the 90s. A support group. Have you ever heard? Have you ever heard this womb? Wives of mean bastards. It was called, and they were all very middle class men, very well off, and they would pick up the tab and when 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 they went to dinner and as couples, and they would do all this, and the wife would have a car, but she would have to say exactly how much she needed for the petrol, exactly how much she needed for the clothes. Exactly, had to ask. Money was control. Yeah, and it was yeah. you know it was apparently it was a very well um, attended uh, support group. So yeah, you know. Yeah, happens everywhere, <laughs> and that's not that long yeah. ago. Yeah, I have to say, finishing the book though, I'm I, I'm a bit concerned about Elaine though. It's not. I mean, I know. I know it's you know we don't expect happy endings anymore, but yeah. I'm I'm wondering well, what I happens think it's next. Happy. Do you? I mean, I think it's kind of happy. Yeah. I think she's she's resolved something with her father. Yeah. She's faced the past. She um, 
she has some idea of who she is now, I think, and she's a little bit stronger. Although I think she wanted her father to say, no, don't don't go back. Yeah, you know, she probably did. And when he didn't say it, yeah. she was a little bit glad too. Yeah. It's as well he didn't. He was doing it for her sake, I think. Because if she to stay, stay and he, as, he, as his health deteriorated, she'd been there for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, there are, are so many very richly drawn characters in this book, mm. and uh, we, we haven't got time to go through all of them, mm. but I just wanted to mention Agatha, because she oh, seems yeah, to me to be a very complex character. And she is, yeah. She's, a, she's a 16 years old, is that correct? She's um, a little bit older. She's yeah. about 17. Se- about 17. And can we say, we can say, yeah. the, uh, Agatha's blind. Yeah. Um, and the reason is... Um, not the reason I mean, she's blind we don't know we never really know why do we <laughs> I'm asking you I can't we, remember we were, t- uh, we were told that she did see uh, she did see at the start I mean, she of was her five. life yeah, so I mean, she obviously she, had there was some. an accident that's right you're right yeah. now the reason is sometimes in a novel there's unfinished business and I had started to write a short story about a blind girl in, um, in uh, it's set in Normandy in France and then I, I, I left her there and I went off and I did my I did the novel instead but I wanted to I didn't want to leave her blind girl I wanted to bring her with me so I brought her into the novel and actually funnily enough it's the way things work out that's now going to be in um, a collection an anthology of sorry an anthology of uh, Irish um, or not, I think they're all Irish uh, female writers Sinead Gleeson is oh, the editing. long yeah. gaze back the long gaze back yeah. that story I took it out and worked on it again but anyway this idea came to me about blindness and not being able to see and how your life will be led and you know how you would cope and I did a little bit of research on that so Agatha is blind and Agatha is neglected in one way, even though they have all material. These all these kid, different kids are from very middle class backgrounds, and they're materially taken care of. They are neglected, and Agatha is blind, and she's her friend, and Elaine loves Agatha, and uh, Agatha's mother is an actor and doesn't really, you know. Yeah, but she 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 rails against, I suppose, what you might call kind of stereotypical treatment by others who just yeah. sort of see the child with a disability. Yeah, but yet. I mean, she's would you brave. say she is still a victim in a way, isn't she, Agatha? Oh, she is, of course. Yeah. I mean, she's a young girl and she's and she's blind and she's trying to come to terms with that. And her mother is an actor who's really only into herself. Mm-hmm. And her aunt loves her. Her aunt and uncle have no kids. They, they love her and they sort of take care of her, which is how Elaine gets to know her because she comes to yeah. stay there every time her mother gets apart and goes off. Um, and Agatha then becomes the victim. But she's probably the bravest person in it. Yeah. She yeah. is the bravest in it. And the most outspoken in her own way. And mischievous. She has kind of got a little a little wicked mis- mischievous streak in her. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a darkness, I suppose, to a, a few of the characters as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. well, you know, yeah. you can't. And their friendship is also so central to it as well, isn't it? it? Is. Because they make this promise at the end or this uh, yeah. promise not to reveal a particular detail yeah. is kind of kept through. And, and it's kept through. She yeah. feels that that's kept through and yeah. she... Um, and for me, that was kind of the finishing note, actually, of, of the book. It was kind yeah. of like this female friendship and how strong that was and how loyal uh, yeah, they were to each other, you yeah. know. OK, Absolutely. well, we're actually going to wrap up now. But thank you very much for your oh, time you. to David and to Sirica and to Christine. I just have one more question, Christine. I'm just wondering if you could tell us uh, it, or if you know yet what your, your, your next project is. I'm working on it as, as we speak. I'm working on a play, another play. Great. It's called The Cave. Very good. And it's about... Um, a boxer, an old boxer, uh, boxing, ex-boxing, uh, middleweight or, or heavyweight. I haven't decided how much weight I'm going to put him on yet. <laughs> and uh, and a trumpet player, his brother, a trumpet player. And it's sort of inspired by Plato's parable of the cave where people are chained together 
and they are not allowed to look at the world, but they have to see it reflected on the wall of of a cave and that's how they guess what the world is like okay so, and when might we see that I don't know I'm hoping Owen, Owen Rowe you know the actor Owen Rowe and yeah. myself are going to work in collaboration on it so I'm hoping um, he'll be available the timing will be right that's the problem to get the timing right so that's my project for the moment and then I have a, a novel lined up I'm going to start on the 7th of January which is the day after my birthday Oh, so that's, yeah. that's fixed. That's definitely going <laughs> to happen. That's going to start that day, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Christine Dwyer Hickey. And Christine's novel, The Lives of Women, it's in all good bookshops now. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. It's got some very beautiful prose and really, um, really um, some chilling themes, in fact, um, I think. But um, for, for now, that's all for uh, this month's edition of the Irish Times Books podcast. Thanks very much. <laughs>